are. Welcome. No matter where you are, no matter where you find yourself tonight, um, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, we're glad that you're here and we want you to feel welcome. My name's Matt. I'm the RUF campus minister at Wofford, and uh, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And we're one of the many campus ministries here at Wofford. And, and what we're trying to do uh, alongside you is to learn how to love God, learn how to love our neighbors, and love how to love Wofford College. And um, more fundamentally, though, we're people bound by the reality that before we love God, before we love others, we celebrate the reality week after week that Jesus loves us. And only out of understanding that do we love others and love him in return. Um, so to, tonight we're going to be continuing our series in Jonah. We've been looking uh, at the messy life of Jonah. And if you grew up in church, this story is probably familiar to you. If you didn't grow up in church, you don't consider yourself a Christian, you probably have heard of this story of this prodigal, rebellious prophet who ends up uh, finding himself in the belly of a giant fish, okay? And um, that's actually where we're going to be tonight, Jonah chapter 2. Um, Jonah is at his lowest point, um, and the text can be found in your handout, or if you bought, brought a Bible, Jonah chapter 2, or you can go uh, on your Bible app on your phone. But I want to have the text in front of you and follow along. But uh, And as we've said each week with Jonah, Jonah is not about a giant fish. Jonah is not about Jonah. Jonah is about a gracious God and the depths of his mercy that he extends to rebellious sinners. That's what it's about. Uh, it's also helpful for us, friends, is um, oftentimes the way that we read our Bibles, we, uh, we sort of divorce the Old and New Testaments. And it's helpful for us to slow down in the Old Testament to remind ourselves that the Bible is one story about God redeeming the whole world through his son Jesus. And the new, it's not just a New Testament story. And so as we see the depths of God's mercy as it points to the coming king and the coming prophet in Jesus Christ who um, is the central character of the story, it's good for us to be reminded of that in the Old Testament. So we're in Jonah chapter 2. Um, so W.H. Auden was this poet who may be one of the most famous poets of, of the 20th century. He wrote this poem around Christmas time uh, in 1941 and 1942 he was writing this poem and it's called for the time being for the time being Chris uh, a Christmas oratorio that's the name of the the poem and around the beginning of the poem here here's some of the lines and he's talking about the human condition and the miracle of Christmas okay here's the lines how could the eternal do a temporal act. The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And as I said, Auden wrote that, those, uh, worked on this poem between 1941 and 42. This is in the wake of Pearl Harbor and as Hitler continued to ravage Europe. And so, friends, um, when Auden wrote the words, um, nothing can save us that is possible, he meant those words. He felt them palpably in ways that, that you and I can't imagine. Those who must die are demanding a miracle. Help has to come from the outside. David Zoll uh, was 
is a writer who's been really influential to me and on this sermon. Here's his words on this autumn, autumn poem. To say nothing can save us that is possible is a bold statement and one whose truth might not be self-evident in everyday life because many of the problems we face on a daily level may be fixed. They can be fixed or at least addressed. If our car breaks down, we can take it to the garage. If we get a headache, we can take some aspirin. If we say something mean, we can apologize and so on. Zal continues and says, Auden's meaning becomes clearer and more palpable for, palpable for us when we consider problems of a, of a less everyday nature, the kind of problems that keep us up at night, situations we can't control, situations which demand a miracle, situations which are literally beyond us. And so, friends, as we go to Jonah chapter 2, which I'm going to read in a second, I just want you to have one thought in front of you. Nothing can save us that is possible. I'm going to follow, uh, follow along as I read, friends. This is God's word. He has spoken to us. He's not silent. He's spoken to you and to me not to give us a book of rules to follow or a theology exam to ace. He's spoken to us because he loves us. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet, shall I, yet I shall look, look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, and, and I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. I can't ever read that last verse without just like laughing at how crazy that sounds. <laughs> vomited Jonah out uh, uh, on dry land. Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is living and active. And we know that to be true because you are living and active. Lord, we also want to just pray honestly tonight. Thank you that you are not a God who invites us to pretend to be something that we're not. And so I uh, come to you and pray honestly that um, I ask that you'd slow me down. My mind is busy and my heart is restless. And I know that I'm not alone there tonight. And Lord, we will simply not hear you or learn from you or believe you if you do not slow us down and help us to see beautiful things in your word. Ultimately, 
that we would see Jesus and that we would be more like him because of this time and that we would be both hearers and doers of your word. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Before we get into the points, just a word about the fish. Okay, so um, many of you are hearing this story and you look at this passage and this is affirming everything. You know, if you had intellectual doubts about Christianity and an empty tomb and feeding 5,000 and all the miracles that are in the biblical text, you're looking at this, see, like, here's another thing that, like, according to science, can't happen. And so I just want to say, like, if that's you and you have questions about this text, like, scientifically, uh, those are good questions. And I, I want you to be safe to ask those hard questions theologically and intellectually in RUF and of the text. And we don't need to be afraid to ask those questions. So I just want to start there. And then I just want to briefly highlight three interpretations that have been through, throughout church history. The church has read this text, uh, and I'm not really going to go into the weeds and nuances of every single one, but just to say there are three main interpretations in church history, um, and I land on the third one. Um, so the first is essentially that this, this story is a myth, that there's no historicity to this story. Jonah wasn't a man, and Tarshish wasn't a real place, Joppa wasn't a real place, and now it's helpful, but it's just a myth, okay? So there's no historicity. That's, that's option one. Option two is that it's a theological parable. And that is, there's, it's not really a historical in that Jonah wasn't a real, a, real, a real guy, wasn't a real place. But there's like, it's God's word, and that's inerrant, and it, it's living and active, and it instructs God's people. So there's so much to pull from theologically and learn and grow as God's people. But it doesn't really matter if Jonah was a real guy or not. Okay, theological parable. Then the third is historical narrative. So we would read this the same way we would read like the Genesis and uh, we would read historical narrative of like the Old Testament historical books, um, like the prophets or first and second Kings. We read about David's life. That's historical narrative. That's that's my that's how I'm reading this passage. That's where I'm preaching from. Um, the second option is very close to the third historical narrative, okay? That's where we are. If you have any questions on that, any time that I'm preaching and you're like, I don't know, like, how has this been interpreted throughout church history? You have questions? I would love to talk to you about that and, like, nerd out with you about that over coffee. So please. Uh, and look, Jonah is not about the fish. Uh, Christianity does not rise or fall or live or die um, rather, whether or not, like, Jonah was in the belly of a fish, Okay? It's whether or not there's an empty tomb or not. Okay? So, now, let's go to the sermon now. Um, here, here are the points. Here's where we're going. Um, first, the depths of despair. The depths of despair. And then second, the severity of mercy. Depths of despair. Severity of mercy. Uh, let's go to the depths of despair first. It's our first one. So, just to review, Jonah, if you remember, he's the prophet who God came to him and said, I want you to go prophesy against this evil nation, Nineveh. And as we've talked about, Nineveh was super, super evil. And the reason that Jonah disobeyed God and ran in the opposite direction to Joppa to go to Tarshish to flee, as we read over and over, away from the presence of the Lord, he wanted nothing to do with God and his call because he didn't want to, like, go die in Nineveh, because Ninevites were crazy, and they killed basically anyone, and they, they tortured God's people for a really long time. So Jonah, at this point, 
got on the boat, and the mariners um, were freaking out because of this crazy storm, and they throw him overboard, and God appoints this fish to go swallow Jonah up. Okay, that's where we're at. He's in the belly. And the first couple of things that we see, we see two things about Jonah's despair, and this is the first one. The despair that Jonah experiences that sin takes us down. The despair that sin takes us down. That's the first one. So if you notice, one of the things I love, you know, being an English major and loving um, literature is that Jonah is like a literary masterpiece. It really is. There's so much repetition and themes and wordplay. There's if you look in verse 3, you don't have the text, probably all of it in front of you, but there's a repetition of Jonah going down. Jonah's going down. I'm going to go through some of these, okay? Just, you don't have to follow along. Just hear this. In verse 3 and verse 1, Jonah arose to flee, to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Verse 3 again, and he found a ship and went down into it. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship in verse 5 and then laid down to take his nap, right? Verse 15, and Jonah was hurled out and sank down into the sea. Verse 17, Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, goes down into its belly. And then it goes on in our passage. You cast down into the deep, down into the heart of the sea, down in your waves and billows. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. The, the author's trying to be very clear with the repetition. What does sin do to the, heart of, to the heart of man? It takes us down. It takes us down. Because anytime we insist on going our own way, we can get prepared for our lives to get very messy. Because we, we talked about it wasn't just disobeying God um, with his feet. He went in the opposite direction. His heart was it, it, his feet was doing what his heart was his heart was on the run it wasn't just his body that's because sin is much more nuanced than do's and don'ts and following God's law or not it's what is going on inside of you and and sin takes us down and gets out of control really fast and it did for Jonah so you know this like when you lie for the you lie you begin with one lie and then you go down and you tell another lie to cover it up and then you go down, and before you know it, you're like four or five lies in, and you don't even know what the truth is anymore. And we could zoom in on all kinds of sins, right? But just, we don't even, we're so confused and disoriented by the time we're like in the depths, right? We've gone so far down. How did, we look up and like, how did I even get here? Okay, this is what sin does to us. It spirals down. In verse 1, friends, I do want you to see this. Um, in, verse, in chapter 2, you probably heard this word in the Old Testament, sheol. I'm in sheol. What does that mean? It's another like Old Testament word for hell, and pit, and death. So anytime David in the psalm says, you delivered my life from the pit or from sheol or from, from hell, it's one word. You can't get any lower. That's the point. So the depths of Jonah's despair, uh, it's, it's in the reality that sin takes you down. It's not just that. We got another one. The, the despair that there's no way out. He's in the despair that there is no way out. There is no escape. If Jonah knows anything at this point, it's that. I literally cannot escape. Even the, the vivid imagery of like, 
you just think of like seaweed and like belly stuff going all around his body. Like I can't move. This is where I'm at. I can't get any lower. Look at verse three again. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Such such vivid um, language here. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is where he is. He's in the pit. He can't escape. Here's what we need to see. Uh, Jonah's prayer here, y'all, came from a place of helplessness. This, This prayer came from a posture and a spirit of humility and helplessness. He, it ha- help has to come from the outside. He doesn't have what it takes. Uh, have, you, have you been there? Have you felt that way uh, in your life? I, I, I know that you have. You've talked to me about moments in your life you felt helpless. Uh, and many of you probably feel that way uh, right now in all kinds of ways. And we're going to walk through that. This time last Last week, I really felt helpless um, when I was in an ICU waiting room in Atlanta because Ivy's best friend from college, college roommate, and they were maids of honor each other's weddings. Sam, she got the flu and pneumonia, and uh, one thing led to another, and really healthy 30-year-old girl, she was on life support like this time last week. And I was sitting uh, in the waiting room, and I just remember I was looking around in the room. It's just family and me and Ivy, and I just... At one point, uh, her mom just said, I feel so helpless. I just want to help her. And there's nothing that I can do to make her come back. Um, and so what? I looked at Ivy. I was like, I, we both were like, yeah, I, I do too. And we just resonated with that. And, and so what did we do? We did what? It, we did the only thing we knew what to do. Like, we prayed. We prayed. Um, we asked for help, but it was out of a helpless state. That's what I want you to see. Um, so that's the depths of despair. We're going to go to severity of mercy. Second point, severity of mercy. Because Jonah, he's in despair. He cries out. God responds. We want to walk through how he responds and how God responds to his people with tears in their eyes and they're crying out. Okay, that's what we're going to do. So a couple things about God's mercy that we see. Two things. First is this. God's mercy answers. God's mercy answers. Look at verse 1 again. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of the shield I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah cries out in his distress. The Lord hears him. He is not aloof or far away. He's very near, and his mercy answers Jonah. God's mercy has always been answering his people when they cry out in distress with tears in their eyes and suffering and lament. This is what David went through. Psalm 18, he wrote these words. It's like eerily close to Jonah's prayer. Psalm 18, 6, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. 
Friends, if you have any kind of picture of the God of the Bible who is far away, who doesn't, doesn't listen, that is not, that's not the Christian God. And if your like default mode of like th- your your sort of like functional theology of God is that you have to like button yourself up and wipe away your tears before He hears you, that is not the Christian God, at all. Friends, He hears you. He hears you. He longs to hear you and answer you. God of the Bible again is not aloof, and Jonah trusted that the Lord saw his tears saw all the particular nuances of like him being in Sheol and all of this gross belly stuff happening to him. And he's looking death in the face and he cries out to his God in childlike trust because he has no other option. He has no other option. John Calvin put it this way, and this quote should be in your handout if you want to follow along. I love this. Jonah then in this song shows that he was agitated. I love this because it's like so realistic and like how annoying, like he's looking face in the death, like looking death in the face and also like agitated and annoyed. So agitated with great trouble and hard contest, yet this conviction was firmly fixed in his heart that God was to be sought and would not be sought in vain. And he is ever ready to bring help to his people whenever they cry to him. God's mercy hears and answers our cries. He does. It's, just, it's what's going on in, in our text. That's the story of the scriptures. Not God moving away from you in darkness, but moving towards you. It's what he does. So God's mercy answers. God's mercy also rescues. God's mercy rescues. Jonah knew this. I mean, again, he's looking. This is um, one of the reasons that uh, I think it's powerful to read this as historical narrative as literal is like we, we need to identify with Jonah. And the, if, you've been, if you've been near people who are on their deathbeds and you've been close to death, um, this is what Jonah is experiencing. He has no other option. This is the helplessness out of which his prayers are coming. And in verse 7, Jonah says his life is fainting away. His life is fainting away. And it, for us to look at Jonah and say, you know, Jonah, what he most needs right now is like self-esteem. Jonah most needs like a better self-care plan. Is that not crazy to say out loud? And I know like we wouldn't say that. Um, but I, I, yeah, we're going to walk through this in a second. I, I oftentimes feel like we, um, because... Uh, we live in a world that numbs the brokenness that we experience in a world, that our world is actually, actually sick with sin, um, that we forget that we're in a situation that's so dire and helpless that we need outside help, that like self-esteem is not an option for sinners. God's grace is the only option. We need outside help. And Jonah knew this palpably. Um, he's banking on the fact that Help has to come outside of this fish because it is not in here and it's not in me. It's not in me. I don't have the resources. Now, this is a a bit strange. Did you notice Jonah mentions the temple randomly in this passage? He mentions the temple in verse 7. He says he remembers the Lord and his holy temple. 
Here's if if come up for air and zoom in on this if you're going to take anything away from this. Here's why he does this. Jonah uh, was a prophet, and the temple was where you worshipped Yahweh. Uh, Jonah, uh, it, it was said that Jonah would, was a, a worshiper of God. He would have been a worshiper from his childhood. He would have obeyed the Torah and memorized the Ten Commandments. In other words, he has a history with God. So when he brings up the temple, he's, he's recalling his past faith with God. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I'm crying out for help because you've helped me in the past. I'm, cry- I'm looking at the temple which is the physical sign of your presence because you've been present to me in the past. You've been present to me. You've helped me. You've rescued me. I'm trusting you because I know that you're my only hope because that's who you've been. So the, the, the temple, that phrase is not a throwaway line for us. Uh, it wasn't for Jonah. He's looking to his God, his God who answers, his God who rescues. A God who rescues helpless people. Ivy and I watched uh, this movie on Netflix that got some uh, Oscar um, love, A Marriage Story. A Marriage Story. Uh, we, we really like this movie. Uh, it's, it's on Netflix. Fairly new. Uh, Adam Driver plays um, this guy named Charlie. Scarlett Johansson is playing Nicole, and it's about a married couple in New York. And the movie begins with a series of flashbacks and different scenes in their marriage. And uh, while the scenes are going on, like scenes in the kitchen, scenes of them playing board games with their child, you have the voices of of Driver and Johansson um, talking. um, And here's what they say. This is Driver talking about his wife. What I love about Nicole is that she's a mother who plays, really plays. She knows when to push me and when to leave me alone. And she's brave. And then Joe Hansen talking about her husband. Because what I love about Charlie is that he loves being a dad. He loves all the things you're supposed to hate, like waking up at night. And he's incredibly neat. He keeps things in order. And you're watching this scene, and it's just all very moving. Um, and I, we, I did not know what this movie was about. And so what ends up happening, uh, the scene cuts to a therapist's room. And uh, they wrote those sort of what I love about Charlie and what I love about Nicole because they were going to read those lines to each other as a way to make the divorce as smooth as possible because their marriage is falling apart. And it seems out of their hands. Uh, It seems beyond them, beyond repair. In a lot of ways, that's what the movie is about. I I think a lot of y'all can resonate with that because you tell me, um, many of you tonight feel stuck. Depression and anxiety is not going away. Loneliness is not going away. Sin and struggle is not going away. And the shame that accompanies it, that whispers lies in your ears, and they're only getting louder. Maybe you're suffering through anxiety and depression again, and it, like... It, it's this. Is this a part of my life? Is this is something wrong with me? Maybe you're addicted to something, addicted to pornography, addicted to success, addicted to the feeling of escaping and forgetting all of life's problems with pills and alcohol. Maybe you're at the place where you have come to the conclusion 
that you cannot beat your addiction, whatever the addiction is. It could be your GPA. It could be um, locking down post-grad plans. This could be like the current addiction. Maybe you felt lonely for so long, you don't see things changing. It's, you know, freshman, it's, it's, it's spring semester, and again, you just haven't found your people. Are you ever going to find it? Things don't seem to be changing. Um, if you're here and that's you, um, and you're coming to the conclusion that you don't have what it takes to beat this stuff, uh, I just want to tell you, you're right. You don't have what it takes. Um, you thought you were going to come to RUF and be really encouraged tonight, um, but you don't. You don't have what it takes. And here, here's what's so strange about Christianity is weakness is the only way. Weakness and helplessness is the only way, not just to become a Christian, to like live as a Christian. If you read the, Beatit- the Beatitudes from Jesus, the, the Bible's longest sermon, Jesus gets up on a mountain, starts la- naming, blessed is this person, blessed is that person. It's a list of really weak people, y'all. Welcome to the club. Welcome to life in a fallen world, following Jesus with tears in our eyes. Okay, that's where we are. And I, I want to say, I just want to like encourage you and say, uh, spiritually, there's nothing wrong with you. There was nothing wrong with David when he cried out to God. There was not, like, this is where we live in a fallen world. So the, the older I get, um, the more I struggle with, um, with anger. And uh, I, I think it was probably, I don't know, towards the end of seminary, so five years ago or so. I'm, uh, for y'all Enneagram types, some, I'm an Enneagram 2, which means uh, someone has always hurt my feelings um, because I'm so sensitive. Uh, so, I, i.e., I'm always, like, kind of bitter at somebody, um, just being real. And um, so I, I noticed that um, when anger popped up, and it could come up in all kinds of ways, it felt like I, it felt out of control, not in any kind of, like, explosive way, but just, like, I remember coming to the conclusion in, in prayer, Lord, I, I don't know what to do to change this about my heart. Like the only way that I'm not angry at you and people that have hurt me and I still resent them is if you change me. I got helpless. And here, here's, what's, here's the deal. That's the sweet spot spiritually. That's what he wants the whole time. Dependence and reliance on his grace. That's what he wants the whole time. We just act like we're okay. Like, well, I put my barber jacket on and carry my leather bag around like I'm okay. And I'm like, it's, uh, it's, it's not real. It's not real. I'm helpless. I'm a child in need of a father to lead me in a fallen world. It's what he wants the whole time because that's an intimate way of following Jesus. Rather than stiffing arm him, stiff arming him and doing self like self sufficiency and autonomy, um, the sweet spot is weakness spiritually. Um, so Jonah, again, he looked at the temple, and you know what else was going on in the temple? He didn't just meet God there; there were sacrifices there. Jonah knew that the only way you have a relationship with God is if there's blood. If there's bloodshed. Jonah knew that. We don't look to a temple. We look to Jesus. 
We look to Jesus who himself is the temple of God, is the presence of God, is the word made flesh. And it's through Jesus that hope actually comes and the severity of mercy is on full display. One pastor puts it this way. And I really want you all to hear this and I'm landing the plane, I'll be done. God brings himself down, down into the flesh down into our life, down into our trials, down into our temptation, nails him down onto a cross, lays him down into a tomb, and Jesus goes down into the belly of the earth, hell itself. And when he can go no further, he rises up victorious. He conquers the grave as low as it gets by resurrection and extends that mercy to us by his spirit through his ascension. Jesus went as low as you can go. The severity of mercy comes to us through Jesus, who on our behalf, let our sin take him down. And for our good, God lifted him up and death was defeated. When a man 2,000 years ago walked up out of a graveyard and death will never have the last word over you and for me if you have a speck of faith that Jesus is enough. Let me pray for us.